I want to talk to you tonight on the subject of half-heartedness. Half-heartedness. Half-heartedness is the very opposite of being enthusiastic. Uh, If we're going to be enthusiastic, we can't be half-hearted and vice versa. You may have heard the story of the man who came and he was visiting a church, much like I'm visiting, my wife and I are visiting with you tonight. And he came in, he wasn't sure where to sit, he sat down near the back. And as the message was going on, uh, he began to, to shout and every once in a while would say hallelujah or amen and people started turning around and looking at him like what, what's wrong with him? And some of the ushers began to look at him and the preacher would go on and he would shout amen, amen so loud the pastor would lose his place in his sermon and uh, finally one of the ushers went to him and said sir, said, you're just going to have to be quiet here. He said, well, I can't help it. He said, I've got the old time religion. He said, well, you didn't get it here, so shut up about it. Uh, I hope you got it, and I hope you got it here. Uh, Half-hearted, what does it mean? It means that your intentions, your affections are divided. You're you're not wholly sold out to anything. You're not wholehearted about anything. You're not committed. You're lacking zeal, you're lacking courage, you, you lack determination, you're just half-hearted. I want to look at some scripture tonight. I want to share with you some scripture from 2 Kings chapter 13. It's a little-known story in the Old Testament about Elisha, the prophet who followed Elijah, and about a king named Jehoash. And I want to show you how uh, Elisha was just showing this king, you need enthusiasm. You need to be sold out to everything you're doing. We're going to look, if you'll follow on the screen or in your Bible, in 2 Kings 13, verse 14, it says, When Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. My father, my father, I see the chariots and charities of Israel, he cried. Elisha was about to die. When the Bible says he's in his last illness, this was it. Wasn't going to be sick anymore. This was it. This was going to take him out. That's the way of all the earth. We are going to live for a few years and and we're going to die. We're not going to live here forever. We're given a body of clay. We're made out of earth. We're going to return to the dust. This body will. But you are going to live forever. You are made in God's image. The Bible says God breathed into us the breath of life and created us in his image. That certainly does not mean he looks like us or walks like us or talks like us. What it means is that God lives forever. And in his image, you are made to live forever. When you were created, when you were conceived and your life began, you were then given life that will live forever. Now, you have a choice of where you're going to live that. You can live that in heaven or you can live that in hell. You do not have a choice of whether you will live forever or not. You have a choice of where you will live. Elisha was about to die. Joash was terribly upset. Not only was he losing a good friend, and and King Jehoash was upset because he was losing a, a valuable part of his military strategy. Elisha was a prophet. And Elisha was able to tell the king when he was getting ready to go into battle where the enemy was and what his strengths were and where his weaknesses were. And and the kings, the enemies could never figure out how does King Jehoash know so much? And it was Elijah the prophet telling him these things. And he knew when Elisha dies, 
he's going to lose the greatest secret weapon he ever had. So now he's, he's worrying over him and he's mourning over him. Now, King Jehoash was the kind of king that if he had to have the best of everything, if he wanted more horses and chariots, he got them. If he needed more uh, huge armies, he got them. If he needed more powerful bows and arrows, he got them. But now he's losing the secret weapon. And he cries out, as we see in that second part of that verse there, my father, my father, I see the chariots and chariots of Israel. That's what Elisha said. When Elijah was taken up into heaven, Elijah was one of the ones, one of the few that didn't have to die. Chariots of fire came down and received him. Elisha saw that. And he said this. Now, King Jehoash is repeating the same thing Elisha saw when there was another death. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. The bow and arrow was a weapon of war that day. And Elisha said, you get your bow and your arrow, and, and you, know, you get ready to fire. You get ready to shoot that bow. And as the king put his hands on the bow and on the string to pull back, uh, Elisha reached around him and put his arms around him and put his hands on top of his hands. And it was as if... God himself was now saying to the king, I'm going to cover you because Elisha was God's man. And God was saying through Elisha, I'm going to be with the king and you're going to still be victorious even though Elisha is not going to be here. It signified that he was going to draw the bow, but God was going to still be doing the fighting. Look at verse 17. Then he commanded, open that eastern window. And he opened it. Then he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow. Elisha proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. It was not unusual for a king leading an army. They were headed toward another country or they were getting ready to cross into a boundary of another country that he would shoot an arrow over that way. If there was an army coming, approaching them, the leader would often shoot an arrow toward that army as, as a warning to them, we're coming. As a warning, we mean business. Now, Elisha says, shoot out toward the eastern window, out of the eastern window toward the east. This is going to be, you're going to go out and do battle, and, and you're going to have victory over the enemy there. But then he did something a little bit strange. Look at verse 18. Then he said, now pick up the other arrows and strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. Just picked up the quiver of arrows, strike the ground. He did just one, two, three. And he turns around and he looks at Elisha and Elisha's not happy. Look at verse 19. But the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. Now you will be victorious only three times. What's going on? What is it all about? He told him to strike the ground. He didn't tell him how many times. Three times. He's not very interested. He doesn't have a lot of energy. He doesn't seem to be energetic at all. Doesn't look like his heart is in it. Just three times he hit the ground with those arrows, those weapons of war. Elisha said, you're only going to be victorious three times, just three times. To receive all of God's benefits, you've got to be sold out to God. You've got to be enthusiastic. 
God has given us his teachings to obey, not part of them, all of them. He didn't give us his teachings and say, I want you to observe part of these, but all of them. If we do not follow God's instructions, then we ought not to be surprised that we don't have God's blessings. It's amazing to me sometimes to see people who do not abide by God's word, who do not live according to his word, and then they wonder, where is God? They wonder why God is not involved in my life. Why am I not being more victorious? They're saying, where is God? And I'm thinking sometimes God must be saying, where are you or where have you been? Let me show you several things. If you'll look up on the screen, I want you to see this now. God does not want his followers to be half-hearted. God does not want his followers to be half-hearted. He wants you to be sold out. There's a story in Revelation, Jesus, in speaking to the old apostle John, and he speaks to the church at Laodicea with their three verses we're going to look at here, verses 14, 15, and 16. Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, you are neither hot with passion nor cold with apathy. You're just lukewarm. You can take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. Whatever happens will happen. Just be lackadaisical all you want to. And Jesus said, this doesn't please me very much in the church. You see, God doesn't want his followers to be half-hearted. Have you ever, have you ever picked up something to drink and you think you're getting one thing and you're getting another? You think you're getting a big refreshing gulp of Pepsi or Coke or Dr. Pepper, and it's tea, a little flat, isn't it? Have you ever thought that you'd be getting something cold to drink, and it wasn't hot, it was warm, kind of nauseating? That's what Jesus said. Lukewarmness is so nauseating, I'm about to spew you, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. That's how repulsive half-heartedness is to Jesus. Now, let me show you another point on screen. As a church, we should never be satisfied with half-heartedness. In our country, most people are. If you take a poll of our country, we're told that about 93 and 94% of people say they believe in God. 94% of people in the United States say they believe in God, but you do not see 94% of people living like they believe in God. They can take God or they can leave him. It just not ought to be that way. But there, there are several areas where this lack of zeal, lack of enthusiasm just doesn't work. Let, let me show you a picture. Look, look at this picture here on the screen. A, a, a rowboat. If you're in a rowing team, everybody sitting in there needs to be rowing in the same direction, Right? What if you're in a race and you're in a, a, on a rowing team and only the first couple of people in the boat are rowing? You're not about to win. You're not going to come close. What if you're rowing and the people in the front are going one way and the people in the back are going another? You're going nowhere. What if the people on one side are doing one to one another or, or how about every other person is rowing? When you're in a rowing team everybody's got to be pulling together. That's the way it ought to be in the church. 
in the church, we ought to all be pulling together. It's that same way in the family. Who wants a half-hearted husband or a half-hearted wife? My wife, I love her. We've been married almost 41 years. We got married when we were in middle school. Um, (laughs) She does not want me to be faithful part of the time. She wants me to be faithful all of the time. No child needs half-hearted parents. A lot of children today are, are not loved and cared for by their parents in the way they deserve, not the way God wants children to take care of, and it's an absolute shame. We have too many parents, fathers and mothers, that are not doing what they ought to do. As believers, as members of the church, we should never be satisfied with half-heartedness. I had the privilege of flying to Atlanta a few years ago for a conference, and uh, we were flying back on the plane. I was talking to my friend about this half-hearted idea that I was working on a sermon, and he said, you know, how would you like to be flying on a plane where the mechanic was half-hearted? Not very happy. I want to be flying on a plane where the mechanic, the, the stewardesses, the ticket checker, everybody is giving it all they've got. Did you hear about the plane that was really, the the ride that was really rough? Every way the plane was pitching and the turbulence was terrible. And finally they landed with a thug. And it was such a terrible flight, the pilot decided he would go and speak to all of the passengers and apologize to them as they were leaving. And everybody got off the plane and the last person was one little old lady. And she said, I just got to ask you one question. Were we shot down or did we land? I want a pilot that can do better than that, don't you? I want to show you five quick things. Now, I know we're supposed to be out at 830. Um, I do know better than that. I want you to look right here. God is not pleased with half-hearted believers. What's a half-hearted believer? People who believe just a little bit. People who, who want to go to heaven, but they really want God in their lives until it's time to go to heaven. They're people who who just believe enough that think they're going to go to heaven. It is amazing to me through the years to see people, and I sit with people who have death in their family, and they all talk about how this person or that person or whatever has gone to heaven, and now they're with Jesus and all this, and I'm wondering, are you sure? I don't know, but are you sure? You know, why would you think this person's in heaven now when they never paid God any attention at all? Why would you think this person is in heaven now when they wouldn't even go to church on Easter and Christmas? Or maybe that's the only time they went. You know, God is just not pleased with half-hearted believers. Nor, secondly, God is not pleased with half-hearted servants. We don't like a half-hearted servant. You go to a restaurant and eat a meal, you want your waiter or waitress to be on the job. You, you don't want to go and have a meal somewhere where the, the wait person absolutely hates his job, do you? You want somebody who's enthusiastic about that. Now, if I'm going to a a meal and and I've got a good waiter, good waitress, I think we ought to give a good tip. I do not feel that way if I don't get good service. I I remember several years ago, this was a long time ago, back when we were a lot younger, my wife and I were on vacation and we were in this very nice restaurant because on vacation we could do things like that once or twice a year. But this waitress, young girl, was giving, I thought, excellent service. My wife thought she was flirting with me. 
You see, it was a long time ago. But my wife thought she was flirting with me. I thought she was giving good service, and I left her a very nice tip. Well, my wife didn't say a thing about it until an hour later. And she looked at me, and she said, you liked that waitress back there, didn't you? I said, no, I didn't like that waitress. I liked the way she served. I liked the way that she gave us good service. She said, you left her a big tip, didn't you? I said, well, I left her a nice tip. I thought she deserved it. She said, she'll never get it. She showed me the tip I had laid on the table. Uh, we don't want half-hearted servants. I learned something that day, leave the tip after my wife leaves the table. God's not pleased with half-hearted believers or half-hearted servants, nor look at this. Neither is he pleased with half-hearted church members. Who are half-hearted church members? People who go to church part of the time. People who support the church part of the time. People who go to church but don't support the church financially. Half-hearted Sunday school teachers or half-hearted youth group leaders. Uh, half-hearted church members just don't cut it. We had beautiful music up here tonight. Suppose on, on the keyboard here, suppose there were about six keys that stuck every other time you played them. You and I would know the difference in worshiping. We, we enjoyed the bass that was played up. We enjoyed all the instruments. We, we enjoyed the bass tonight. Suppose during the middle of the service, three of the bass strings broke. Or the drums. What, what if, if the bass drum just quit, if it just split right wide open in the middle of the worship song? That, that's what kind of half-hearted church members do. God doesn't like that. A, a piano, a keyboard, a musical instrument they played part of the time would not lift us to worship, and neither does a half-hearted church member do much for God. Number four, though, you would never be satisfied with a half-hearted Savior. Pastor Andy's already told us tonight, and we sang about it earlier as Matt led us, Jesus went all the way to the cross. He didn't go part of the way. He was totally obedient. He was tempted to quit. It would have been easier had he quit. It wouldn't have been any salvation for me and you. Jesus went all the way to the cross, and there he died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Had he stayed in that tomb, you and I would not know life eternal. But he, was, he conquered death and hell and the grave by coming to life on Sunday morning, that first Easter. Had he just died, it wouldn't have mattered. He came back to life. Had he come back to life and just stayed here on earth and kept teaching the disciples, it wouldn't have mattered. He ascended into heaven, where there he intercedes for us every day, all day long. Every prayer you offer, he takes to the throne room because he was completely sold out to do whatever we need to do for us. He needed to do for us. He was victorious and courageous. He overcame the world. He gave himself completely to the cross, and he lives forever to intercede for us. And one last thing I'll show you. Our Savior is not satisfied with half-hearted followers. He said on one occasion, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord is going to make it into heaven. Now, what do you mean by that? He's going to say, not everybody who said, dear Jesus, bless me, 
is going to make it into heaven. Not everybody who said, dear Jesus, I, I'm sorry I sinned is going to make it into heaven. He said they're going to be on that judgment day some people who say, didn't we prophesy in your name and didn't we go to church every Sunday and didn't we do a lot of miracles? And he's going to say, but I didn't know you because you never really sold out to me. Our Savior is not satisfied with half-hearted followers. That's mine and your job to change that. Let me close in just sharing a brief story. I wish I knew who wrote this. I, I do not. I can't give credit. But it's simply a fictional story that I think illustrates how Satan often works. It says this, a fallen angel came to Satan and asked him for an assignment. Satan asked, what kind of angel are you? And he said, I'm destruction. I teach foul language, anger, and indifference. I cause strife among people, especially believers, which is my specialty. I can get them fighting over all kinds of different beliefs and ideas. I have many, many people walking around with, with hate in their hearts who once loved each other. It's really easy. I can get them angry over money, over positions, over knowledge. It's almost like they're ready to get upset over how each other live. Why, just yesterday, he said, I had two men who were neighbors and who are Christians fighting over healing and prayer. You should have seen them. I had God crying over these two. I'm really glad I came when I did because one of those men's boys got to see the argument and he was really close to asking Jesus to come into his life. That was a close one. And then the other day, I should get a medal for this one, this fellow Jack took one of his friends at work to church with him. The man almost decided to ask Jesus into his heart, boy, what a struggle I had. I hate being in church. Well, this man pondered all night about Jesus, but just the next day at work, when Jack was near him, I got another man to get into an argument with him. And man, did Jack lose it. Well, needless to say, I got his friend back, another close call. I did lose one, though. This lady would just not give up on her boy. I had him in drugs and drinking and living up, but she just wouldn't get off her knees for him. And one of God's angels got another kid to talk to him, and he got saved. Get this. The other kid loved that boy so much, he even was crying with him. How do you fight somebody like that? Maybe I can make his life miserable and get him back. Well, I've got years to work on him. I just can't believe how easy it is to cause people to fall away from God anymore. It used to be maybe one in every 15. Today I'm getting over half of them to be lukewarm. It's just awesome how I can cause them to lose their love, that love that would get them to die even for an enemy if it would save them. We're winning, we, Satan, because we've finally got them talking love, but they can't live it. He said, I'm amazed at how God thinks these people would care about others like the first church did. Those people are long gone, thanks to us. Elisha said to King Jehoash, shoot an arrow out the eastern window. You're going to be victorious. Strike the ground now. And lackadaisically, he struck the ground three times. I don't know what God is saying to you to do, but I know one thing. He wants you to put your whole heart in it. He wants you to give it everything he's got. And I promise you, I promise you when you do that, you're going to win the victory. Would you stand with me and let us pray?